So there are so many topics one can choose, and often there's probably the most difficult is to choose the one that will be appropriate for the evening. And it often comes from a a place of um, my own meeting with you and also my inner aspiration. And so tonight the talk will be on the four reminders or four reflections that turn the mind towards the Dharma. There's a very clear sense of motivation that one can nourish. And coming here, we can sense the preciousness of such an opportunity in a world where there is so much happening. So to be on retreat gives us a a unique opportunity to see how and when the mind can free itself from grasping. And as you know, it's no small endeavor. (laughs) The habitual tendencies to clean and create suffering are quite deep. So just to come here, there's already an undertaking, a direction, a chance, you can say, to taste the putting down of all the ordinary burdens that we have. And that's already a wonderful ability and possibility. Now the motivation is also the clear sense of enabling the vision of the Dhamma. And this means seeing through the concepts, the ideas, all the thoughts and beliefs we have in relationship to what is happening. And the reality of life emerges. There's a meeting, you can say, with the truth of our situation and the situation of life in general. So these four mind changings can be quite important and are often motivation factors because they break down that illusion that we might live with or tend to live with when we don't reflect deeply on the meaning, even the meaning of our presence here. And, of course, we have a sense of meaning and motivation that we came with, but over time, it may be possible that we lose that contact, that connection. And so, teachings like the one of tonight may help us, and there are actual practices that can be brought about to have a sense of clarity in relationship to the motivation. The very first time I was offered these teachings, 32 years ago, they had left an extremely strong impact on my mind. And in fact, there was a total orientation which I had left behind to really question the purpose of this human birth. And probably one of the reasons why the Dharma became so clearly important is due partly to this very teaching. One of my very first Tibetan teachers, Dilgo Kinsa Rinpoche, gave very great importance to these reflections. And actually, it's interesting because he would never give wisdom teachings, and you can really include vipassana as a wisdom teaching, without first giving these foundations of the four reflections. 
And he would give the reason. He would say why. He would definitely incline towards the understanding that to know the truth, we need to know why we are practicing and to have a sense of purpose. So these four reflections, what are they? What are the practices? The first is that human birth is precious. The second is the law of impermanence. The third is the law of cause and effect. And the fourth is the imperfections of a conditioned life. So, of course, when we hear these, already one may be a little more striking to our ears. And therefore, it may be that we are willing to be in the face of that reflection. And it may be a reflection that is born with thoughts. There is a very clear sense that at times, some reflection, some investigation may be extremely supportive. Therefore, there may be a moment when there is maybe some doubt in the mind or a lack of energy or simply at the beginning of a day where before we begin our formal practice, sitting with a quiet mind, at the beginning of a day we can spend a few minutes and reflect on these four reminders. Or maybe there is just one that may be quite connecting with your inner situation. In any event, these contemplations are meant to deepen the understanding and the commitment in relationship to to practice when it's needed. And so Please feel free to use them and to have them be alive whenever they um, may help you. So this first contemplation about the preciousness of human birth, you can say, and even more so the precious opportunity to have (laughs) time to practice, to look really deeply inside, is... Very interesting. In the Buddhist cosmology, you know, it said um, that there are a big number of lifespans. We don't just have one life, and they are called kalpas, which billions of years. And there are also different planes of existence, such as the higher realms, and we can refer to the devas, for example. Then there's different god realms, Brahma-viharas, for example, the human plane. Then, of course, the lower plane, such as the animal plane. And then there are even other planes where some of them are called hungry ghost realm, where craving is constant. Can you just imagine? what it would be to be living in a realm where craving is constant. And then there's all these realms where there's constant suffering called the hell realms. So when teaching these teachings at length with a thorough description, days over days, we would have uh, a description of how it would be to live you sense that the human realm (laughs) is a fortunate one. 
And it'd be interesting because Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche would always look at the Westerners and we'd have astonished and inquisitive faces, naturally, not really uh, believing in the possibility because not seeing for ourselves. And he would always say, it doesn't really matter if you're doubtful. It's true, but you don't need to believe in this to practice the Dharma. But please practice, because your condition is rare. (laughs) And to realize it is even more rare. So to obtain that quality where we are in a position uh, to be able to, to free ourselves from the suffering is quite extraordinary. And it's not often true that we realize this. Trumpa Rinpoche says, joyful to have such a human birth, difficult to find, free and well-favored. So why is it so fortunate? Because it's said that there's exactly the amount for many of us, the balance, to be able to have moments where there is peace, happiness, freedom. And therefore we can develop the causes that lead to greater happiness, highest happiness, the highest freedom. Especially if we have good circumstances like this one. We're able to strengthen, cultivate these qualities of heart and mind. Some of them Sky spoke of in her last talk, I know, she told me, (laughs) the Parmis, wonderful, beautiful qualities of heart and mind, and naturally many others that come to being when we are really allowing them to manifest. So it's not by luck. We are here certainly due to certain past conditions. And it definitely takes some determination already to arrive here. So reflecting, even in this human world, if we reflect on the number of beings that live in this human plane of existence. Not many are able to have this opportunity for various reasons, actually. Some just need to be in survival mode. All those that are in places where there's maybe war or famine, diseases, illnesses, a lot of suffering. And it's just impossible for them to think of a situation like this one. And then there's many other possibilities, like all these beings that are busy accumulating possessions, for example, or wealth. And there's no doubt that on this side of the planet, we can see this the cause of stress and are unable to to see beyond. So there's a, a clear sense that something has arisen in us to be able to be in this very situation. And I think that For all these beings that I know that are on retreat today, and not only at the Forest Refuge, one can hold a sense of great self-respect. It's huge to make that shift and to truly value the choice of that aspiration. And that is not self-cherishing, not at all. 
It's giving a sense of purpose and a great motivation factor to nourish the wholesome qualities of heart and mind that are available. And in fact, for many of us, this sense of gratitude has been expressed today from the yogis that I've met. But don't forget the self-respect. Often it's gratitude for the circumstances, for the forest refuge, for all the support that one has here. But it's also born out of your great sense of endeavor and motivation. It gives us the energy to remind ourselves why we're here, when there's pain, when there's trouble, when there's confusion. Sometimes there's discouragement, and this is completely normal. I remember a retreat that actually I did here with Saida Upandita a few years ago, and there was basically some discouragement one day. And his reply was full of energy. He said two things. The first thing to know is nothing is outside of the practice. No experience is outside of the Dharma. And the second thing he said very directly with a lot of strength (laughs) is contemplate your motivation and remember that you are practicing for liberation. In other words, I took that to mean not for just a temporary relief or to feel good, (laughs) which naturally was something that I might have not seen, in my mind on that day. And there's no doubt that at times there's kind of a a misinterpretation with what is manifesting. So if we really practice with that motivation of liberation and that practice includes everything, then we can hold ourselves in a greater space. These circumstances are rare, and they enable the deepening of wisdom no matter what is happening. And each moment that we are aware, there's the possibility of waking up. So the wake up call is happening when we hold ourselves with this potential for freedom. The second contemplation is that reflection on impermanence. And that's such a powerful reflection. Here is a a quote from the Buddha. He says, the universe and its inhabitants are as ephemeral as the clouds in the sky. Beings being born and dying are like a spectacular dance and drama show. The duration of our life is like a flash of lightning. Everything passes like the flowing waters of the steep waterfall. Integrating fully this fact of life is truly challenging. You know, we know that things change on the surface. Intellectually, there's no doubt (laughs) that we know this very well. And yet we don't really live from that space because we have the belief that if we do something to improve, 
then it won't change. Or we'll keep it the way that we would like it to be. So when we let ourselves uh, shift from that level of concepts to direct experience, as the practice is enabling, we can live this truth of impermanence at a whole other level. And it's that level where there is a sense of deconditioning in relationship to grasping, to holding on, to wanting things to be a certain way. So this truth of impermanence manifests in relationship to a great relaxation, not from that space of forcing or will. There is an embodiment of that relaxation. And with that reality, the integration of this wisdom of impermanence can come about. We can really feel when we embody this truth that there is the arising and the vanishing of each and every sound, breath, sight, smell, taste, thought, emotion. Everything that is manifesting has a birth and a death. It's mysterious, isn't it, to really have that be part of our reality. In fact, there's, there's a tendency to deny this reality because it's not very pleasant. There's a discomfort with it until we really understand the freedom that it may bring. Sometimes we fear it. And yet, it's unavoidable. So we can reflect, really reflect when experiences change. Allow that change. Allow that to arise and pass. Again, the Buddha, all conditioned things are subject to birth and death. Absolutely all conditioned things are subject to birth and death. This morning in my cottage, there was a very big spider (laughs) that was lying on the floor in the bathroom. And fortunately, I was aware when I got in that room and did not step on it. And I said to it, it looks like you're taking a sun bath. It was really kind of (laughs) just laying there. And after lunch, it was still at the same spot, but it was no longer alive. And it was just such a striking experience. And the first thought I had was, maybe it was already dead when I saw it in the morning. And I had not really seen that fact. I don't have an answer to that. But it was amazing how One moment there was an openness in seeing this being and joy and that phrase that came up about just, oh, here you are, making friends. And then the next moment, a few hours later, the relationship was completely different. It really kind of had a contraction in the chest to say, oh, this being's gone. And it's amazing, because it's like that with every single situation in life. It's poignant. And there's no doubt that compassion is the source to be able to, to care about life. So we learn to meet this impermanent nature in so many ways. 
In so many ways, this is what is manifesting. We learn to be with the fleeting nature of a desire. Maybe we fulfill the desire. And how, in truth, grasping will not do it for us in the long haul and see that, okay, this has been. And seeing how grasping onto the events of life reinforces the conditioning and most of all the suffering. So awareness allows to see through another lens. And that lens is to be open, so open that we can allow in and allow to go. Opening to the flow of life, inner life and outer life. It's just like the gentle flow of the river. There's an ongoing current and this life of ours is a current, a current of life, and it has its own rhythm. So in in relationship to being in the presence of impermanence, awareness is the great learning to allow and accompany this flow of life. And let it be. Really let it be. Actually, what happens is that when mindfulness and wisdom are the guides and they guide us and we can feel their presence, there's much less trouble. Why? Because there's less and even at times no preference. And this is exactly what is happening. Preference is bringing grasping. And yet when there's reactivity leading to grasping, we need to relate to it and to see, oh, this is manifesting. This is the invitation. So we become intimate. And we become intimate with the impermanent nature of grasping as well. And can become aware of the relief and appreciate the relief. So anger, aversion, disliking, pushing away. How does it feel? How does it feel when this experience is present? How do we relate to this experience? notice the mood of the mind in those moments. Is there aversion in relationship to aversion? This is where the holding is happening. Aversion is just aversion. But are we nourishing aversion in relationship to it? And the way to meet this is to really also notice the unpleasantness, to be really sensing what is happening at the level of the relationship. And eventually, we allow the impermanent nature to be just present, and the relief is there. So at times, there's a a clear sense of being able to notice and to place the attention a little more on the endings, the endings of a breath ending of a sitting. When am I going to end the sitting? There's no bell. (laughs) So it's quite fascinating that you can explore this in relationship to what the mind is manifesting. Is it being in simplicity? Or is there a pulling away? Or a rushing forward? You know, why... When is it? When is the motivation coming forth to encourage or to manifest a shift, a change? And then to notice, oh, impermanence. 
change. Change happens also when we make the changes. Tichnathan says this, nothing remains the same for two consecutive moments. Heraclitus said, we can never bathe twice in the same river. Confucius, while looking at his stream, said, it is always flowing day and night. The Buddha implored us not just to talk about impermanence, but to use it as an instrument to help us penetrate deeply into reality and obtain liberating insight. We may be tempted to say that because things are impermanent, there is suffering. But the Buddha encouraged us to look again. Without impermanence, life is not possible. How can we transform our suffering if things are not impermanent? How can our small daughter grow up into a beautiful young lady? How can the situation in the world improve? We need impermanence for social justice and hope. If you suffer, it is not because things are impermanent. It is because you believe things are permanent. Aware of impermanence, you become positive, loving, and wise. In fact, it is very good news. Without impermanence, nothing would be possible. With impermanence, every door is open for change. Impermanence is an instrument for our liberation. Take it on. So there's a real value in sensing, feeling, and allowing the moment to manifest this truth. The third contemplation is this contemplation or mind-changing, turning the mind towards the Dharma in relationship to the law of cause and effect. And no doubt this is a very complex matter. But we can relate to it, especially here in relationship to our practice, and have a reflection and understanding that actions actually bring result. There's no doubt that wholesome actions bring forth wholesome results. Cause and effect is one of the basic principles. Yet one action, you can say, and its result is subject to so many influences. And yet we think that there's one cause. And it's not so. It's so much more wide and broad than that. So the Buddha said we cannot begin to know where the law of cause and effect starts for any action. In fact, he named this law, or the law of karma, one of the imponderables. And it's quite interesting because it's quite complex. There are four imponderables that the Buddha named. And here they are, according to him. He says, do not try to think about the mind of a Buddha. Nobody can really understand it except another Buddha. Do not think too much about the power of a highly concentrated mind unless you have one yourself. Only a very concentrated mind can understand itself. These are the two first. It says, do not think too much about the beginning of existence. 
And the fourth is do not try to fully understand the law of cause and effect, since this is impossible. And it's impossible because of the endless circle or cycle of cause and effect. It's nonetheless possible for us to relate to this teaching in a very pragmatic way, very simple in a way. And in the moment, we can sense that when we are angry or annoyed, we can feel the effect of pain. And the reverse is true too. When we are loving and caring, there's no doubt that we will feel a lightness of heart, an openness. If we are aware of the present moment, then we see those thoughts that are creating trouble in the mind, or attitudes, behaviors, that kind of condition the atmosphere, the landscape. So when we see this in the moment, as a momentary experience, we can begin to sense that there is a law of cause and effect. Now what it said in the teachings is what most conditions the result of an action is exactly what we're talking about tonight, the motivation behind it the intention. And so I think it's quite helpful to bring about that quality of intention. And it's a wonderful place on retreat to be able to have this space and watch more clearly the mind at work. What is the inclination of the mind? or the motive that makes us do something, we can really sense and bring some clarification if needed. It's really not an easy thing to know, because it requires presence. But when there's an interest and a sense of contact, a connection, there's a possibility of noticing a little more the process, rather than a state which is isolated from the previous moment. And what is happening in reality is an ongoing process, as I said. So we observe the succession of cause and effect moment by moment. You know, there's the thought, oh, this knee pain is going to get worse and worse and worse, and I'm not going to be able to sit. And in the next moment, fear arises. And in the next moment, the chest contracts, right? Because of the fear. And there's an image of a limping leg. And here we are in the creation of a process, which is a process of cause and effect. The first thought conditions fear, the fear conditions the physical sensation in the chest and in the image. And in the light of awareness, we can see this cause and effect very clearly in each and every moment. We can see the direct relationship between the body and the mind. Physical sensation, thought, mental image, mental state, emotion, and the wisdom mind can notice this process and sensitivity deepens. When mindfulness is a little more stable, then the wisdom can show up. And there's a possibility of just allowing the process to be known without a relationship of more construction or grasping. Sayadaw Utejani is a a Burmese master with whom I've practiced. 
these later years. He says this, he says, Wisdom inclines towards the good, but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. Therefore, wisdom recognizes the difference between skillful and unskillful. And it sees the undesirability of the unskillful. So there's a real learning in this process when wisdom is present. It inclines towards the good, but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. Therefore, attachment and aversion are not present. And then it can recognize the difference between what is skillful and what is unskillful. And this is exactly what the practice offers in each moment. Whatever it is that is happening for you in your practice any moment. So we can understand from that perspective that nothing is excluded. We're learning from every single experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And even if we shut down or close our hearts, as happens at times, it's done with the intention to understand. Therefore, the motivation factor is one which is wholesome. There's a sense that we begin to sense that whatever it is that is manifesting, if the highest motivation is present, it inclines towards receiving the experience because it's just what it is. And Pema Chodron expresses this very well. She says, What is encouraging about meditation is that even if we shut down, we can no longer shut down in ignorance. We see very clearly that we're closing off, and that in itself begins to illuminate the darkness of ignorance. So there's a real treasure with the practice when, even if it's painful, we're not lost in that darkness of ignorance. The wisdom comes in and shines. And this happens as we're feeling experience, as we're resisting, as we are shutting down there is a possibility at times to care to meet the resistance itself. And with that attitude, there is a wholesome quality. So this aspect needs to be remembered, I feel, because so much of the time, underneath, we really have a sense of good and bad. Unconsciously, this so often is present. So we don't need to get rid of the unpleasant. Because of all the inter connectedness that we have with beings, the karmic links, you can say. We may be interested to also sense the possibility to include other beings in our wish or in our aspiration to be here. There's no doubt that this broadens the perspective. Within the spectrum of wholesome intention, There's such a possibility of, as I said, uh, 
knowing that so many beings are in suffering, but it broadens the scope or the sense of purpose, if you wish. If you include other beings, if it resonates for you, it can be a way where you bring in this understanding at whatever may happen, may my practice or the motivation of my practice help or benefit all beings. And therefore, connecting with the universal dimension of humanity. Because we all share this predicament of pain, and we all share this wish or aspiration to be happy, no doubt. Even if we have different modes or ways or beliefs, deep down, there is that common ground. So there's a possibility to bring as a reflection or as a motivation the possibility of broadening the scope and include other beings. in the same way that we share the, the blessings in the evening. The last and fourth contemplation is to contemplate on those limitations or imperfections of life. And the Buddha talked at length about this, this incredible way that we sense suffering. And of course, you know about the Four Noble Truths. In those Four Noble Truths, there's a clear sense of the three types of suffering that the Buddha talked about. Suffering of pain is the first that very clear sense of not experiencing what we want and experience what we don't want is in itself painful. And there's the suffering of change, which I talked at length, knowing that even pleasant experience will pass. And therefore to attach or to hold on is painful. And that's exactly where we can free ourselves and move away from that conditioning. And the third is the all-pervasive suffering, which is very subtle, but it's kind of that continuous, you can say, underlying discomfort that we may feel, due just to existence itself, that whenever we need to take care of the body. You know, sometimes we feel, oh, (laughs) it's a drag. (laughs) We have to attend to the needs of the body, for example, or just simply said to try to maintain this this existence. Um, In a very clear way, the body... The body is one piece, but also caring for the mind. So contemplating and reflecting on the suffering of this very life due to wanting, to craving, is part of that contemplation. And when we see through wanting success or not wanting failure, reflecting on all these ways that we have maybe strong attachments, to possessions, for example, or even to beings, that is a cause of suffering. And even here, 
we can sense that. You know, it, no doubt that it's a beautiful, wonderful space for practice. And yet, we know that there are imperfections. There are things that we may want to have differently or happen differently or even in our minds or practice at times. doesn't offer the conditions that we would like. And so we are in enabling the reflection in relationship to this. May we allow this to be known and acknowledge the truth. Oh, this is what is happening. With love and with compassion on the side of mindfulness and wisdom. There's a clear sense of courage of heart to open to that pain, that pain of imperfection of life, and see it from a place of of care. Great care, actually, is needed here. To be able to see this is how it is right now. And then receptivity will be replacing reactivity. There's no doubt if clinging, wanting, craving is at the source of our being, suffering will follow. So it's a great gift, a blessing actually, to be able to give ourselves the conditions to wake up and to notice how Difficult it is at times to renounce indulging, to renounce the usual habitual fantasies, and to notice how we can get tight at times around some emotional states or some thoughts that are running in the mind that are persistent and that are causes for worry or stress, to really bring in the possibility of seeing this as nourishment for freedom. And as soon as resistance drops away, freedom is available. I've noticed for myself that one moment it will appear as if I'm immersed in a dark room, totally entangled, (laughs) involved in the identification and all its contradiction. And the next moment, it appears as if I'm in the open air, appreciating the light and the openness and feeling the freedom that lies in the truth. And this can happen so quickly. As Thich Nachan says, we are here to awaken from the illusion of separateness. And that's exactly what is happening, is the craving and the grasping create a sense of separateness. And when there's dropping away, there's the simplicity of being, the freedom brings wholeness. all born out of awareness. And the allies of awareness. So if you find it helpful during your practice at times, you can reflect on these four mind-changing. The preciousness of a human birth and even more so the incredible fortunate circumstances that we are in. 
the law of impermanence, the law of cause and effect, that things manifest in a certain way and there's a process with a result. And the imperfections of life situations. We can reflect on them through thought, and we can naturally see, by allowing the practice to unfold, see all these at the level of direct experience, with the help of mindfulness, moment by moment. Naturally, the insights will arise based on this connection. There's discernment. And that wisdom really transforms the reality of this human nature. And it helps us really see also what is beneficial, what needs to be cultivated. I think that in fact in those moments of seeing clearly we actually can make a choice. There's always a choice that can be made. And one of the choices is create more suffering for ourselves or make the choice of creating more peace. There's a real possibility, an option here. When wisdom is present, there's no doubt we make the appropriate choice. No doubt. Pema Chodron says this, now is the only time that is based in reality. How we relate to it creates the future. In other words, if we're going to be more peaceful in the future, it's because of our aspiration and exertion to be peaceful in the present. What we do accumulates. The future is the result of what we do right now. This is the power that has the Buddha Dhamma. When we apply these teachings, there's a great potential for liberation. And we're all in this great fortune to be able to do this. It's so special. Knowing the world is in the state that it is in. So I'll end with the Dalai Lama's everyday prayer. And I read this not long ago, so I was just reminded that this was the prayer he had said that he recites every day. For I am fortunate to be alive. I have a precious human life. I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to use all my energies to develop myself and to expand my heart, to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. I'm going to have kind thoughts towards others as best possible and not going to get angry or think badly about others as best as possible. The intention is to benefit others as best I can.
Thank you for listening.